You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. If you are a guest, uh, we're in the middle of a series on the book of Nehemiah. So if you have a Bible in book form or app form, find it, turn to chapter eight. Uh, As you find that chapter, um, I'm a pastor. If you didn't know that, I'm a pastor. And um, I preach. One of the things that's on my job description is preaching. It's literally on a job description. I I am a preacher. And so, and I love that. It's my, quite honestly, the favorite part of my gig. And I, I love it and I'm very thankful for it. But there's one thing I struggle with in my preaching and that is, and there's people that do it far better than me, especially when it comes to finding illustrations. I'm not a great illustrator of, of sermons. Um, I'm always looking, I'm always thinking about it, but I, I, I have a tough time uh, from a week to week basis, always come up with, coming up with good illustrations. And so, um, The very fact, uh, just so you know, the very fact that I had a heart attack a couple of weeks ago, if you don't think I'm gonna be using that as a sermon illustration for the next 10, 15, 20 years, then you're wrong. I will be using it all the time. Um, And so here it goes. Number one, just mark it down. A couple of weeks ago, I had a heart attack. I was downstairs in my house and I was watching golf on TV like all cool people do. And uh, all of a sudden started feeling more and more pressure in, in the middle of my chest. It became painful, started feeling things in my left arm and scrambled upstairs. And my wife was, was in, the, in the kitchen hanging out. And eventually I said, I, I think I need to get to the hospital. Uh, although I think I said it a lot louder than that and a lot shorter than that. I said, let's get to the hospital. And so we live near UBC, and so we went to the UBC hospital. My wife drove like Lewis Hamilton, any F1 fans, Mercedes driver, she drove. She may have broken the speed limit on the little highway out to UBC to the hospital, and we scrambled out, we got into the emergency ward, and the great thing about having a heart attack is they don't make you wait. It's it's one of the great benefits of having a heart attack. You go all the way to the front of the queue. So I got in there, a lot of pain. People ask me, did it hurt? Does a heart attack hurt? And I say, not. If you're okay with someone standing on your chest, reaching inside to, to your chestal cavity and squeezing, if you're okay with that, then it doesn't hurt. For me, it killed. And I'm a big wuss, and so I wanted pain medication, and so they were sticking IVs in my arm, and they were giving me morphine, but it wasn't helping as much as I would have liked. And so they tried some other things, did some other things. I was getting a lot of tests and a lot of things going on, and some of it I don't even remember. Um, but eventually, at some point, they sprayed under my tongue with a, a nitro spray. And that expands your blood cells, and all of that makes heart, you know, makes blood pump better, oxygen, blood get to your heart and so on. But it did a weird thing for me. For me, and I didn't know this was going on, I just knew at a certain point I did not feel very well. And um, what had happened when they sprayed the nitro in my mouth is that my blood pressure dropped off the map and my heart rate went to the, down into the 30s. And um, they again were scrambling around and they eventually came up to me and said, uh, well, Norm, you're having a heart attack and we're gonna get you to VGH. I says, okay, great. Got into the ambulance, but before they did that, they had cut away, because I had these IVs, they had cut away the gown they give you, you know, that ugly green gown, they cut it away. They'd put a couple of pads on, the, on my chest and I found out after, because when I got into the ambulance, um, they put them there because if you flatline, 
They want to be able to defibrillate you. Not defibrillate, as I've said it for 55 years, defibrillate you. And that whole boom, boom, you know what you've seen on the movies, and, and bring you out, revive your heart. Bring you back to life. Just in case you flatline. Wait for it. This is going to be great. Here's the transition from illustration to Nehemiah 8. The book of Nehemiah is a book of revival. That's what it is. Don't know if you know what the word revival means literally. Vive in the English comes from the French. Vive means long life. Viva la France. Revival means bring back to life. That's what the book of Nehemiah is about. We use the word, have been using the word rebuild, but we mean the same thing. But thus far, for the most part, we've been looking at the rebuilding of things. Walls, homes, before this, the temple. But most importantly, as I've tried to remind us throughout this study, the book of Nehemiah is a book about the rebuilding of a people or the revival of a people. The question is, how do you revive a people? Because I think we get how to revive or rebuild things like walls and homes and such, even temples we could probably get our heads wrapped around, that idea, but how do you revive a people who have flatlined? Well, that's what chapter eight is about. And chapter eight, as you turn there, is a chapter that is centered around the word of God. The word of God is the key theme of Nehemiah chapter eight. It's a chapter that is centered on the word of God and that is because, because that is where revival begins. If you want a revival to take place, there must be a coming back and a right response and rightful attitude to God's word. So let's look at it. Let's laser in on some things. If that's the premise, then let's notice some things from chapter eight about the connection between God's word and revival. Here's the first thing that I want us to notice. Revival comes when God's word is read. It begins there. Take a look at verses one to five. <clears throat> when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. They asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. While he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it. There it is from daybreak until noon before the men, the women and those who could understand. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. The scribe Ezra stood on a high wooden platform made for this purpose. Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Mas, uh, Mahasiah. <laughs> Be nice to have a John or a Peter in here once in a while stood beside him on his right, and on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hash, Badana, Banana, Badana, Zachariah, and Meshalem. That's awesome. Any of you pregnant? You got some names you could take from that list. 
Please do. It'd be awesome. Ezra opened the book, verse 5, in full, full view of all the people since he was elevated above everyone. As he opened it, all the people stood up. Stop there. There's so much in here. So much good things in here. I want us to, again, go even a little deeper and notice some things that stand out. First, note that Nehemiah has stepped back. Nehemiah has been the leader. He continues to be the leader, but he has stepped back and Ezra has stepped in. Ezra is what? He's a priest. He's a scribe, meaning he is an expert in the word of God. And in Ezra 7, I've taken you here before, in verse 10, we have what, would you, what you would call Ezra's life mission. It's beautiful. You can read it behind me. Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. It's a great life mission. And so, as the people gather together in verse 1, they ask Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses. What, what, what is this? What is the law of Moses? Well, it is the first five books in what we would call the Old Testament. Lots of different names are used to describe the first five books of the Old Testament. The law of Moses, obviously one. Um, the Torah. Torah simply means teachings or instructions. The Pentateuch. Penta, five, five books. It's a, it's a, Greek word, meaning five books, or these first five books sometimes, and you'll see this in the New Testament specifically, is just titled Moses. When you read Moses, and this is a reference to the first five books. So notice that first. Ezra has stepped in, and they've asked him to bring this law of Moses and read it. But see number two in verse one, that they ask Ezra to to bring the book of the law of Moses, and if you like underlining things, underline this, that the Lord had given Israel. Meaning what? Meaning that Moses was the writer, but God was the source. It was God's word that God gave Moses that was about to be read. Not Moses' word, God's word given to Moses for the people. Why is this important? It's really important. It's important, especially if you're a student, you go off to college, some first year prof tells you you can't trust the Bible for whatever reason, that it's just Peter's view or Paul's view or Moses' view. It's not in fact true. People are used as conduits and authors and writers, but God is the source. No one less than Jesus in his ministry life affirms this. Jesus' view of the Bible is why I view the Bible the way I do. Not because of the manuscript evidence, although it is over the top, or the archeological support, although it's overwhelming, or the prophetic utterances that are statistically, it's an anomaly. All of those reasons, not the reason why I believe the Bible is how I view it today, because of how Jesus viewed it. And he viewed it and referred to it as God's word. That when the Bible is read, God is speaking. In fact, this is affirmed in something that Peter, 
five centuries later writes in 2 Peter chapter one, when he writes, above all, you know this, no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of men. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3 that all scripture is God-breathed. Uh, Paul actually had to invent a Greek word there to describe how the Bible came to be. Theopneustos, God-breathed. God-breathed in its production, and as we read elsewhere, God-breathed in its proclamation. But notice third, something else to notice, that they gather, the people here, gather in front of something called the water gate. What is this? Well, this is the busiest area of the city. It's also an area of the city that would have allowed as many people as possible to gather together. They, they didn't gather in the temple where only a, a select few could gather, but they gather in an area where the most people possible could. Why? Why is that? Well, what I would like to suggest is it's because God's word is a word for the people and not an exclusive few. It's for men. <clears throat> it's, it's for women. And it's for children. But speaking of that, something else to notice in verses two and three, it tells us that men were there, women were there, and all who could listen with understanding were there. What does this hint at? Well, forgive me if you think I'm taking this too far, but it hints at age group ministry. Uh, we, we get a hint here of the first kids ministry. Kids weren't there. At least not the very young kids weren't there. Everybody was there who had understanding of what was being read. <clears throat> Where were the kids who didn't have understanding? Well, probably at that time they were at home, but in our day, they're downstairs in kids' classes. But here's the beauty of that. When they are down there in kids' classes, they are gathering to hear and learn about the Word of God as well in a way that they understand. That's the picture being painted here. Something <clears throat> to notice last in verse two is that they gather on the first day of the seventh month. Now, why do I highlight that? Well, that, that was the first day, the actual beginning of the new civil year for them. Our civil year begins, as we know, on January 1st. Their civil year began on the first day of the month of Tishri, um, <clears throat> and therefore, excuse me, as I clear my throat, <clears throat> and therefore, it was a new year. But there's something else going on here that is significant attached to this, isn't there? It was a new year, but it was a new beginning. A new beginning, and it seemed like a good time to remember the past and bring in new life by the reading of God's word. Paul writes um, in one of his pastoral epistles, uh, to a young pastor named Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. That's what they did here. For revival comes when the Word of God is read. But second, revival comes when the Word of God is revered. 
And their reverence for the word of God shows up all over the place in chapter 8. First, the very fact that they ask that the law of Moses be read is a reverential act. Reverential act. Because it suggests strongly, it affirms strongly that they stood under it. That there was a word over them and they were to hear it. That's reverence. That God, this is yours. This is your word to me and I'm under it. Secondly, they ask Ezra to read it. A priest and a scribe and, and an expert in the law and Nehemiah in humility steps back, stands out. And third, in verse four, a platform is built specifically for this purpose. So as we read here, they could hear, everyone could hear and see. Love this. Um, I've talked about this before, but a couple years ago, Nicole and I traveled to Europe, went to Italy and we went to Greece and we went through a lot of cathedrals and basilicas and domos and all of that kind of stuff. Beautiful places, gorgeous. You've seen, I'm sure some of you have been there or at least you've seen pictures of, of the beauty of these places. One of the things you notice when you go into these different places, houses of worship, is the elevation of the pulpits. Like some, like going up stair after stair after stair, beautiful, ornate pulpits, not as nice as this one, but beautiful, ornate pulpits, where people would literally have to climb up, and if you were in the in the audience, you'd have to crane your neck to hear and see. Now, I know many people scoff at some of these cathedrals and how ornate they are and the pomp and the circumstance and, and all of the money that's gone into it and all that. I, I get it, but please understand the motivation behind, especially the elevation of the pulpit, was a deep reverence for God's word a place where the word would be elevated and where people would have to cast their eyes heavenward to hear and to see. Do I think we should go back to this? Like build some stairs here? Probably not. But I do think a reverence for God's word needs to be recaptured as depicted in it. Their reverence also, also shows up in verse five when Ezra opened the book as he did, all the people stood up. For how long? Six hours. From daybreak, about 6 a.m. to noon. Six hours. You think I speak a long time, and I know you do. Six hours. They stood. And the thing that's great, you don't get the sense that Ezra said, everybody stand. He just stood up. He opened the book and they stand. We stand for things today. National anthems, right? If we greet people, if they come into a room, most often we won't just sit there, we'll stand up, greet them. Shows a measure of respect. Back in the day when chivalry wasn't dead, if a woman stood up at a table, all the men would stand up too. They stood for six hours in reverence for the reading of God's word. But notice in verse three that they don't just stand. All the people we read of in verse three listened attentively 
to the book of the law for six hours. If I said to you that this Wednesday, um, God is going to be a guest speaker here. We got him. We locked him down. We got him on the calendar. God, be here 7.30 Wednesday. My guess is that some of you would show up. Some of you might even show up early. Some of you might even sit in the first pew. I know it's scary up here, but in the first pew. My, and my guess, too, is when God speaks, when he spoke on that Wednesday at 7.30, you probably listen attentively. I mean, it's God speaking, right? God speaks here every Sunday. And God speaks when you get up in the morning and you make your first cup of coffee and you open up your Bible and you read it. God speaks. He speaks in your CG groups and he speaks in your Bible studies. He speaks in your kids' classes. He speaks. He speaks to us through what he gave people like Moses and Isaiah and Solomon, Paul and, and Peter and, and John. Jesus said, whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. And whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. You see, Midtown, this isn't just ink on a page. That's not what this is. But an abiding seed that's living and active. And the things written here as John writes at the end of his gospel have been written coming from God so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and have eternal life in his name. That's what this is. The challenge is for us, challenge for us, excuse me, is whether we have ears to hear. Do you come ready to hear God speak on a Sunday or on a Tuesday night? Do you come ready to hear? Are you prepared to hear from God through his word? And when you listen, do you listen attentively and with reverence, or are you more distracted and critical? J Jesus said in Luke 8, 18, you can read this again behind me, take care how you listen. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has will be taken away from him. And we should care in how we listen because Jesus says elsewhere that he hides his word from the scoffer and the hard-hearted and reveals it to the one who seeks and the one who's open. It matters how we prepare ourselves to hear from God's word. It really does. So revival comes when the word of God is read. Revival comes when the word of God is revered. But there's more. Revival comes next when the word of God is retold and when the word of God is relayed. What do I mean by that? Well, I touched upon this last week. In verse 7, and I took you to verse 7 and 8 last week, there's a list of 13 Levites there. 
who went out to the people and explained the law to them. Their ministry is wrapped up in verse 8. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that people could understand what was read. What is this? This is Jerusalem's community group ministry. It's wonderful. This is great. They go out, Ezra's reading. They're going, what is he talking about? And they explain it. They have a chance to ask, how does this apply to me? What does this mean for us as a people? What does this mean? And they can speak into it. They can translate it, bring understanding, help with application. Again, that's our CG ministry. Those are our Bible studies. Those those are our kids' classes, and I'm not overstating it. Every ministry that it's worth its salt, every ministry has to have a preaching ministry and a teaching ministry under it. Isn't there teaching and preaching? Sure there is. There's teaching and preaching, but you have to have opportunity to come together where you can ask questions and go, I, you know, Norm, is, he's long and boring. It's hard to understand. What do you mean? What does he mean by that? Help me with that. Help me bring application to that. That's what this is. Our CG leaders are the Levites of this ministry. Bible studies in our kids' workers, too. Verse 8 is their ministry, and they are invaluable. Never leave a CG ever or a Bible study or a kids' class without hugging your CG leader. Just love on them. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for leaving and coming into us and opening up your homes to us where we can talk through this and wrestle with it together. It's beautiful. But there's another group mentioned in verse 13. Take a look at it. On the second day, second day of that seventh month, the family heads, uh uh-oh, here we go, of all the people along with the priests and the Levites assembled before the scribe Ezra to study the words of the law. So this is a a two-day event. But on this second day, not everybody comes back. This time, family heads come back and priests and Levites. Why is that? Because down the line, these would be the individuals responsible for the carrying on of the ministry of the word. Fathers, husbands, priests, Levites, pastors, elders, They would be responsible. Does that mean that only fathers and husbands can teach in the family context? Of course not. But they do have responsibility for what goes on in their family context and in their marriage and ministry areas. I'm going to step on some toes today, um, but I have an excuse. I just had a heart attack a couple of weeks ago, and so... (laughs) I've got like a three-year moratorium until you can get mad at me again because I'm very fragile, very fragile, very fragile person. A major problem in the church today is that most men wouldn't come back for a second day of Bible study. You know what I mean? Not all. Got great men here. But this is a major problem in the church today. 
Women aren't guiltless. You're cursed too, women, as men are. It just shows up in different ways. But women, when it comes to the word of God, are fantastic. And the problem is, is that even though many have been walking with the Lord a long time, if their son or daughter asked them to give meaning to something that they had read, many wouldn't be able to. That's a tragedy. And I don't say that to shame anyone. I don't. We're not to shame in our teachings. So forgive me if it comes across as I'm shaming anyone. I say it because it's not too late to make this the first day of your seventh, seventh month of the rest of your life. And it begins by reading the word and revering the word. And if you're struggling with something, find a Levite here. Explain it to me. Because I want to be able to answer my kids or the people in my life or my friends or my family, whatever it is. So they read it, right? They revered it. They retold it, relayed it, and finally, what do we see? In chapter 8, they responded to it. And this is vital for revival only comes when the word of God is responded to, no matter how much you read it and how much you revere it. In fact, it's not going too far to say that it is spiritually dangerous to study the word of God without an obedient response to it. James writes that whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8, chapter 1, or chapter 8, verse 1, excuse me, that knowledge apart from obedience puffs up. It leads to pride. And that's a problem because God opposes the proud, and we don't want God opposing us. Jesus said that it's only those who hear his words and act on them who are building their lives upon the rock that is Christ. How did they respond to the reading of God's word? Well, five ways that I'll close with really quickly. The first is repentance. In in verse 9, the people wept when they heard and understood God's word because they, at this point in time, realized how much they had sinned against God. We're going to talk more about that next week in chapter 9. But the reality is, the reality is, the more time we spend in God's holy word and it shines light into our lives where we we see the areas where we aren't conforming to his righteousness. Spiritual revival throughout history always involves repentance. But that's not the only way they responded. Secondly, they responded with joy. Repentance is good and important, but repentance should be met with joy. Take a look at verse 10. Then he said to them, that's Ezra and Nehemiah together, in fact, go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared since today is Holy to our Lord. Do not grieve because the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's great. See, God never wounds to hurt, but to heal. He's a surgeon. He, he's not a boxer. But, but sometimes healing means we have to get cut. We've got to go under the knife. 
To use John 15 language, we have to get pruned. But only for healing's sake. For wholeness sake. He's, he's a good father. He doesn't want to hurt us. He wants to heal us. God doesn't punish a Christian either. Why? Because of that. Jesus was punished for us. He's a good father. And when we get into the word and we start reading it, and we realize that Jesus did what we couldn't, and that we're forever part of God's family, it only makes sense that we respond with joy. And that joy will be our strength. Thirdly, they responded with good works. I, I, I read verse 10 already, but in verse 10, Ezra and Nehemiah remind the people to send portions from the part of their sacrifices that they would eat to those who had nothing. God's word should, re, should produce compassion in our hearts for the needy. Um, it should pour out of us. It, it also should produce a heart for the lost. For those that don't know the God of the scriptures. As Paul writes in terms of our good works to Titus, Jesus redeemed us to make us a people zealous for good works. Fourthly, they responded with obedience. Take a look at verses 14 to 17. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should dwell in shelters during the festival of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and spread this news throughout their towns and in Jerusalem saying, go into the hill country and bring, bring back branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make shelters just as it is written. The people went out, brought back branches, made shelters for themselves on each of their rooftops and courtyards, the court of the house of God, the square by the water gate, and the square by the Ephraim gate. The whole community that had returned from exile made shelters and lived in them. The Israelites had not celebrated like this from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, and there was tremendous Joy. So what's going on? Well, day two, remember that day two of the Bible study? They start reading together and they come across in the law that they were to keep a feast, a feast called the Feast of Shelters or the Feast of Booths. This commemorated two things, seven-day feast. First, the harvest that was just being taken in. It came around the time of harvest, so it was a celebration of the harvest, but they would live in temporary places as a reminder that God redeemed them from Egypt, but they journeyed in the wilderness, and when they journeyed, they lived in temporary shelters. But the biggest thing that I want you to see in this is that they read it and they did it. And it hadn't been done since Joshua was leading them. He took over for Moses. But they said, no, it says it here. And we've, we've still got a couple of weeks, so let's get the word out because it's written there. So let's do it. Don't miss that. James, again, you can read this behind me one more time, writes, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who, who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who, who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Read it and do it. I double dog dare you. 
And you can't turn down Double Dog Darren, right? You know that. It's against the rules of the playground. Get up tomorrow, read a chapter, underline something you're going to do that day. I dare you. See what happens. See how blessed you'll be. See how blessed you'll be. They respond in one other way. Worship and celebration. Worship and celebration celebration are all over chapter 8. One of the most beautiful places is in verse 6. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and with their hands uplifted, all the people said, Amen, Amen. Then they knelt low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verses 11 and 12, and the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, since today is holy. Don't grieve. And listen to verse 12. Listen how sweet this is. Then all the people began to eat and drink, send portions, and have a great celebration. Why? Because they understood the words that were explained to them. Isn't that great? Let's put on a party, man. Let's eat and drink. Why? I get, I get what it says. What a celebration. Verse 18, Ezra read out of the book of the law of God every day from the first day to the last. The Israelites celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day there, were, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. Solemn but still worshipful. And full of gratitude because they understand, understood from the word of God how God loved them and his gracious dealings with them. Midtown, the reading, the study, the preaching of God's word should produce in all of us a heart of worship as we reflect on his abundant grace and mercy, especially on this side of the cross. Like they partied reading the first five books of the Bible. Have you read Leviticus? <laughs> like, they're like let's, let's party. And we're on the other side of that. How much more? There's, there's nothing God honoring to not party well. We, we need to be people who love to party. The right way. Parents are freaking out right now. I mean, yeah, I've got, yeah, you hear what Pastor Norm said, Dad. Um, I got to close. By the way, here's an aside. Seven feasts in the Old Testament. Seven feasts. So in the Old Testament, people say they tithed in the Old Testament. They didn't tithe in the Old Testament. When they gave, they tithed. But 10% to the temple every year. 10% to the feasts. 10% every year to the feast, 10% every three years to the poor, 23% every year on average. But 10% to the feast, how important is celebration to God? Because it honors him. That was a side. I got to close. If you've ever studied the great revivals throughout history, going all the way back to the Old Testament, you will find that the word of God is always at the center of them, always. For example, all the way back in 2 Chronicles, a 16-year-old king named Josiah totally goes against his dad, who was a deplorable king, and he begins to seek the Lord and institutes spiritual reforms. During that period of time, this young teenaged king, 
a priest finds a copy of God's law in the temple. He comes to King Josiah. He reads it to him. Josiah is cut to the quick, man, and he puts out an ordinance to the nation for a national repentance. And a national revival took place. The early church, too, exploded. Why? Well, in part, at least, because the early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. And the apostles were devoted to two things, the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer. That's why Paul says to, again, a young Timothy who's pastoring in Ephesus, preach the word, Timothy, in season and out. The same thing happened during the Reformation of the 16th century, the Great Reformation, which at its heart was a revival of God's word. The Roman Catholic Church had neglected the word. Priests were the only ones with access to it, and most of them didn't know what was in it. John Whitcliffe and William Tyndale, Bible translators, worked hard to get the Bible translated into common English. William Tyndale was martyred for it. He was called a heretic for trying to get the Bible in common English. Martin Luther translated the Bible into German. A Frenchman named Jean Calvin, John Calvin began to preach ex, uh, uh, expository sermons explaining and applying the word of God to the people of Geneva. As all of this is going on, in, it, in great providence, the printing press is invented. And Bibles got into people's hand and a worldwide revival took place. And if you are a Christian today, you are a product of it. The same thing happened in the great Puritan revivals of England and New England, the northeast of the United States. What's a Puritan? A Puritan was a mocking term. It was used to speak of those people who had the audacity of reading the word and applying it. You're a Puritan, or sometimes called a precisionist. J.I. Packer, who I would argue <laughs> is past modern-day Puritan, he writes, and you can read this behind me, and I'll close with this, sort of. For Puritans, Puritanism was, above all else, a Bible movement. To the Puritan, the Bible was... In truth, the most precious possession that this world affords, his deepest conviction was that reverence for God means reverence for scriptures, or the scripture, and serving God means obeying scripture. To his mind, therefore, no greater insult could be offered to the creator than to neglect his written word, and conversely, there could be no truer act of homage to him than to prize it and pour over it, and then to live out and give out its teaching. Intense veneration for scripture as the living word of the living God and a devoted concern to know and do all that it prescribes was Puritanism's hallmark. It was also the hallmark of Nehemiah 8. As I close, here's my guess, at least for some of you. For some of you, your heartbeat for God may not be beating like it once was. And truth be told, for some of you, you've, <laughs> you've flatlined. And you have need for revival, spiritual defibrillation, fibrillation. It can be yours.
today. Today can be the first day of your seventh month of the rest of your life. It can be yours. By going to the book the Holy Spirit wrote and the Holy Spirit fills and the Holy Spirit reveals. Read it. Revere it. If you don't understand it, talk again to one of our Levites and respond to it. And the promise is you will be blessed. And most of all in this, remember, right? Remember the one whom the scriptures testify about, the word made flesh. The scriptures that testify about him beginning with Moses. As we move to a time of response, and Ken's going to lead us into this time, I, I want to do something uh, using the example uh, of the people in Nehemiah 8. I'm going to ask that you stand. And what we're going to do together in the lead up to Ken moving us into a time of response is I'm going to take you on the screen to the longest chapter in the entire Bible, Psalm 119. Psalm 119 has two themes within it. One is the Word of God. A lot of synonyms used for the Word of God in Psalm 119 and revival. Those are the two connected. Here's the beauty of Psalm 119. Many theologians believe that Ezra wrote it. And he wrote it at the time of the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. We're going to read these together, but I want to speak specifically to some of you who right now, you're not, your heart's not beating strongly. Or maybe even worse. So let's just not read the words. Let's pray them. Asking that God would give us life. So let's read them together. I'll read them with you. You read them out loud along with me. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. I will never forget your precepts for by them you have given me life. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord. According to your justice, give me life. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your judgments. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to mtownchurch.ca.